Welcome to the Zero Waste Code podcast, brought to you by Green Code. We are a tech startup based down in Cornwall, and it is our mission to reduce food waste in the hospitality and food service sector. In today's episode, we speak to Connie Fenner of the Package Free Larder, Portsmouth's first plastic-free supermarket. We also speak to ex-head chef of 15 Cornwall, Adam Banks, to tell us what he has been up to. And lastly, we have Professor Pete King, who speaks to us about acts of kindness. So keep listening to find out more. So first up, here is Connie Fenner to tell us about the package-free larder. What is the story behind the package-free larder? So the package-free larder is a community project set up by um, volunteers in a group called a committee. We we call ourselves a committee that run the um, the project. Um, and about 18 months ago, we first met and kind of put all our ideas together as to what we would like for a plastic free shop in Portsmouth. And then after six months of doing that, um, we started to go into the public and talk to people about it. And then after a kind of after a while, we figured that people do really want this. And we launched a crowdfunder and we asked for the funds to open the shop so that we could actually do it because we, we had the know-how and like the passion. But um, as volunteers, we didn't have the funds. So we asked our community and they responded by um, donating. I think we raised over £43,000. It was crazy how much we raised. It was, it was unbelievable how much um, people supported us. That was last year, and since then we've been working on finding the perfect property. We found it at the beginning of this year, um, and then lockdown hit, so we couldn't fix it up and do the refurbishment as quickly as we'd like to. But after a while of getting to grips with that, we are opening this Saturday on the 11th of July. So how did the coronavirus affect your business? Luckily, we already had the keys to our shop, and we already had the things in place to start getting ready. if we hadn't, I'm not sure what would have happened. If it maybe it would have been um, a really big delay on actually opening the shop and finding a place. But with us, um, we restricted the amount of people that could go inside the building um, to do the refurbishment. So for a good month or two, we didn't have anyone in there. And then after that, we let tradespeople in one at a time to get their jobs done, um, which seemed great for them. They seemed quite grateful that they could have a space that was completely for them and we would wipe it down um, between people. And it's just put a delay on that really. Um, And also it's changed how we work a lot, but in some senses it's a good thing that we've had to adapt. Um, When we open the shop, we'll be open for people coming into the shop, um, but also click and collect orders. So we've got to adapt both of those sides to um, obviously the new way of shopping because people have gotten used to like, quite a different way of shopping than they would six months ago. Um, So yeah, it's changed a lot of things in that, but it's quite good to kind of adapt and and, and lots of different options to shop safely. So moving on to sort of the more sustainable aspect of your business, what do you plan on doing with the perishable food that isn't sold, if you have any? So um, that's a really great question. And we asked a zero waste shop in Birmingham, they're called the Clean Kilo, and we did some consultancy work with them. They're amazing. And they um, save it and to any food that is wasted. So, for example, if it falls on the floor or anything like that, we can either compost it or you can kind of look it over and be like, hmm, maybe one of us could eat it and take it home. 
Um, or we can give it to the community if it hasn't been spilt or spoiled, um, if it's just uh, close to its expiry date or it's, it's a day or two past its expiry date. Um, our plan is to either give it out to our committee and the people that we know in our kind of community that we have or to open it up to the community of um, our customers um, and people like that. But we'll have to figure out what's the safest thing to do and regulatory-wise what we're allowed to do. But we're really, really hot on, um, obviously, no plastic waste, but definitely no food waste. And all of us have a composter in our garden. So worst comes to worst, it will have to go in there, but we're hoping it won't. (laughs) (laughs) So how does going plastic-free combat food waste? I think with shopping in a zero-waste shop, you can obviously fill up your container or your produce bag with however much you want. So I know that that's really frustrating before I used to, before when I used to shop in supermarkets, that you find lots of things in your cupboards that you don't really get around to, don't ever really get time to eat because you had to buy a kilo bag of something or you had to buy 500 grams of something. Um, So I think in that regard, you start with however much you need. You, You only need to buy what you need and and you can fill up your container with however much. Um, But I think it also does change your relationship with food as well, because I don't know, you're seeing it differently, you're shopping to buy it differently. And I think when you've got the mindset of, okay, I really want to not put as much plastic in my bin, I think you kind of have that mindset or I hope you do as well, where you learn that mindset of, okay, well, I don't want to put anything in the bin really. And it goes from like, trying to stop or trying to reduce your plastic intake to just trying to be zero waste in general, which I see in a lot of people and myself as well, that kind of natural progression towards those steps. Um, and that's all we can hope for really is to encourage people and help people to, to make those steps. What do you think about replacing our current sort of make use waste economy with a circular economy? Is that something your business is focused on? Oh, yeah, 100%. Um, So I'm a business student who specialises in that kind of area of um, sustainability and got a lot of other people on the team who have like business knowledge and um, or have just other skills and things like that. But we're all kind of bound by the same passion for kind of moving away from what we've got now because the systems that we've got now, they're just not really, they're not doing any good. So absolutely, we need to be... um, in the circular economy obviously you take you recycle things and you kind of go back in the cycle but at the same time um we want people to be reusing stuff instead of recycling stuff and that's what we're really trying to trying to hammer home that recycling sounds great on paper but it's quite unreliable and a lot of things don't get picked up to be recycled like they say they should so our kind of ethos is just try your hardest to not buy things Um, if you don't need them and to just reuse them and keep on going around so you don't have to necessarily recycle them and put them back in the system you can kind of reuse them in your own household and your own life which all of us um, try to do at least it's it's easier said than done. Do you think the coronavirus is going to halt how we strive for a circular economy with the throwaway masks and throwaway gloves things you can't reuse? Yeah I, I really hope not I think Maybe at the beginning, I'm, I'm seeing so many single-use everything now, everything single-use for that regard. Um, but I do think that hopefully we can come out of this and aim towards recovering from um, the climate issues that we still have to deal with and we can 
focus our efforts on that, maybe with the mindset of, okay, well, we've been through one crisis, but this isn't the last crisis we're going to go through in our lifetime. Um, So I I don't know. You can only really hope and do the actions that you can do in your local community. And I, I really think that that works. I really think that even though we have all these global issues and we need to kind of change the system and move towards a circular economy, that can be done just by looking around your local community and seeing what you can do and seeing who you can talk to and who you can kind of get on board with the idea. And yeah, it all starts from the bottom. I, I am hopeful, but we are probably going to have to have to kind of move and have to get things going in, in the movement. That's pretty much all of the big questions. So where can people find you and follow you online? So you can find us on Instagram and Facebook by using at Package Free Larder. And then you can find us on Twitter at PFL underscore Portsmouth. Check out our website, which is launching with the click and collect option. So you can start buying orders from this evening. Um, This evening at 6pm. And today is Wednesday, the 8th of July. Um, Or if you are on Elm Grove, just wave because we've always got the door open. (laughs) The committee is eight of us. So I'll shout out to like Ashley and Delphine and Agni and Regine and Katie and Esther Miguel and loads of other people who I'm sure I've forgotten but you will definitely probably see one or two of us in there working tirelessly maybe filling up food (laughs) wonderful thank you so much for coming on the podcast no you're welcome thank you for having me I'm I'm glad that I uh, got a chance to speak with you it's been really really interesting being sustainable in a commercial kitchen doesn't come without its challenges and our next guest, Chef Adam Banks, tells us his experiences at 15 Cornwall and what he's up to now. May, may, may I ask what you're actually doing at the moment? Well, I'm kind of working for myself, um, doing um, a small delivery system of just uh, handmade fresh pasta that you cook yourself at home with, with a sauce, essentially. Um, there's no menu as such. It's just every week I, re- I release a dish uh, and people buy it or they don't buy it. So How do they pick it up from you as well? Then Adam? yeah, so they uh, either I deliver it to them, uh, just in a Nuki area, or they come to a designated area. Uh, so we've been using Tom Thumb Bar at the moment in Nuki, uh, and yeah, they get a, a slot, a time slot, um, to pick it up, um, and then yeah, that's it. They take it away. How long yeah. have you been doing that as well? Then uh, probably about eight. About eight weeks, nine weeks. You Did you say you either deliver it yourself or you, you've got a drop-off point where yeah. people can come pick it up? Yeah, that's it. So if you're in the Nuki area, I can come and deliver it to your house. And if you're not in the Nuki area, then <laughs> you can come and pick it up, essentially. And you have a time slot to do that in. And then um, after a certain point, then I go out and make my deliveries like after I've done my, like people have collected. Um, and yeah, it's, it's super simple. It's one dish. There's no menu. Um, it's either, uh, one week it's vegetarian and the, the week after it's a fish dish. Um, I haven't done any meat dishes yet. Um, yeah. And what made you do that as well? What made you do that then? Uh, well, I was out in Copenhagen doing work experience and all the corona stuff started to happen so i came home Uh, i was supposed to be going up to london to do more work experience and obviously all the london restaurants started to close down so um 
I basically wasn't furloughed by anybody and, and just was like, well, I need to make some money to get me through. Yeah. yeah. Pay my bills and things. So, um, <laughs> I'd been making a lot of pasta at home and stuff like that. So, um, essentially my partner, my girlfriend pushed me into doing it. She was like, right, well, let's just make pasta and sell it to people. Um, you know, and that was it. And it's been good. We've been doing, uh, more and more people every week. Um, do the maximum I can kind of do on my own is about 30 portions a night. So on a Friday and Saturday, I do a total of between 50 and 60 portions. That's quite a lot, isn't it? Yeah, it's quite a lot. Um, could scale up a little bit, but I'd have to then start looking for like an extra pair of hands in the kitchen, um, which might it might be worthwhile. But at the moment, I'm kind of just I don't want to like start pushing it and then kind of ruin it almost. So, um, but yeah, that's essentially what I've been doing um, since uh, since fifteen closing. So, so the, how many? When did fifteen close as well? They closed last December. Yeah. Uh, and I went to Copenhagen in, like mid February um, and was planning on being there for six weeks. Uh, I was only there for five, which is a shame, but um, it's only a week. What do you say you do work experience? You're a qualified chef, surely. Yeah, no, so uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I was doing it, it's called staging. So you go and work um, as an intern, essentially, in. Uh, in, in restaurants or, you know, places like that, um, to gain experience, uh, from them, you don't get any pay, but, um, you kind of get looked after a little bit with food and things like that, like meals and things. So, uh, but it's a good way to go and work somewhere that's, you might not say get a job or, um, you only want to work there for a limited amount of time to like gain experience and then move on to the next one. So, um, yeah, I went, I did two weeks in like rest, three restaurants. Yeah. Uh, and they're all Michelin star, you know, high end. Right. Okay. So you just, right. are you just, uh, doing that for more skill for yourself? Yeah. 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 Essentially just to like, yeah, add progression yeah. to my, uh, CV as well and stuff like that. So do you have quite a following in Nuki then? Like in terms of people knowing about your dishes and stuff like that? Uh, yeah, a little bit. I've just been doing it on Instagram. That's the only outlet I've been doing it on. Yeah. Um, I haven't bothered with Facebook. Uh, so yeah, I've just been doing Instagram. And uh, yeah, every week we pretty much sell out. Um, I've got a small following on Instagram of about 2,000 people. So That's quite big. <laughs> yeah. Well, in terms of like people I follow is quite small yeah. but yeah like it is it's it's a nice number um so yeah we've, um uh it, it's been quite nice actually to meet a lot of new people in the community it's, um a lot of people that have been ordering haven't been people that I used to work with or anything yeah. like that or friends it's been yeah. a lot of new people uh probably customers from 15 that I didn't know but um yeah yeah, yeah that's been quite good I mean, are you actually, is it something you're happy to carry on doing or are you looking to try and get back in a commercial kitchen? I think for now, uh, this is like what I'm doing for the next probably like six weeks. Yeah. Um, there, we are, there is a, I'm trying to 
we're trying to find a premises to maybe open a restaurant. Yeah. Um, but that's kind of like, that's about it really at the moment. I've got nothing long-term that I'm looking at. I, ideally, the main thing is to get a premises, to get a restaurant. Um, is that hard for you as well, like to get a grant to start up? Or are you worried more about the second, like a second wave of a pandemic? Yeah, essentially. Yeah, we've, I've already been granted some funding um, and I've got an investor as well. Uh, well, two investors, sorry. Uh, and I've been, basically I want a startup loan with the uh, government startup loans. Yep. Uh, been granted one of those. I've got like 90 days to take it. Um, but uh, yeah, the second wave thing is the more we've been looking into it, you know, how how much of a possibility is that going to be? Like, like, is there going to be a second lockdown? Like, to what extreme is that going to be? Um, as a new business, would I qualify for anything? You know, or is I've not been trading long enough? There's a lot of questions that we're asking already about you know um obviously the economy needs to get back on its feet and doing stuff but you know do as in do i try and just find a job for now yeah. and and try and get furloughed or wait around to be furloughed but do i really want to do that i don't know no, i just that, wonder how long you how did you get to fit what's your story in getting to 15 as well then uh so I was, um started working there Pretty much when it opened it opened in may 2006 and i started there in august 2006 and was just like a kind of like an entry-level chef um yeah. and then worked my way up i worked there for five years and worked my way up to like uh, a senior position uh, and then left to go traveling <laughs> um and then came back and was working for a couple of friends in falmouth at the star and garter and then basically got offered the opportunity to go back to 15 and run the kitchen. Uh, and that was in 2017, April, 2017. And so then, yeah, work. Uh, yeah. Um, and then, um, so that was about a year ago. And then, and then you started, how recently did you start this, um, you know, like uh, the pasta thing? Is that uh, so, pasta? Say, sorry again? Is it, is it, you, do you change the dish every week then? Yeah, so it's just, yeah. Um, so I've been doing that for, uh, this will be 10 weeks. So this weekend will be 10 weeks that I've been doing it. And yeah, it's just one dish, um, which seems to go down fine. Like nobody's asked for, can you do it without this ingredient? Or, you know, can you not, can I have it without cheese or can I, it's, you know, there's no, nobody asks for any alterations, which is quite nice as a chef. Like you can just get on and just make that dish for 30 people, 60 people, whatever it is. So, um, but yeah, I've been doing that for 10 weeks. Over the years that you have worked in the kitchen, how have you managed to, how have you actually incorporated a, an efficient waste management system for yourself? Is it been all labor? in the past yeah i um it's more the way it's, it's difficult to explain but like so when i went back to 15 there's um you know obviously they've got their kind of like green waste bins and recycling all set up but there was still what i found was there was a lot of green waste so um too much of the vegetable 
was being trimmed or parts that they what, what they thought weren't usable were just being put in this green waste. It was almost like it was quite lazy. They were like, oh, we'll just put that in there because that's it kind of gets dealt with. So it was just trying to change, which was quite difficult, trying to change the mentality of about 20 chefs, 20 people, you know, um, to think more openly about the product that's in their hands. Um, but also the, the best way I tried to, the best way I found was to um, put it into terms of like the cost. Uh, for example, like, um, let's say like rainbow chard, like a leaf of rainbow chard. Um, you pay for it by the kilo and they were chopping off the stem and then throwing the stem away. And when you weighed it, the stem was more, he was heavier. And so you're, you know, if you can explain it to people that they're now throwing away the more, the most expensive part of the item. Yeah. That it has to be used. Like you have to use it somehow. Um, and that was, that was the simplest way of getting it across the people, like picking it back out of the bin and weighing it in front of them and saying, no, you can't do that. It's, um, we're paying, we're paying for it twice. You pay for it to come into the building and now we're paying for it to go back out again. And yeah. it's the heaviest thing when we get, we pay for the tonnage. Yeah. So yeah, that was, that was a difficult thing. Um, and then another way of trying to explain that was to get people to meet the farmers, the growers, you know, these people that, um, let's say they, there was one guy that would, uh, so, um, potatoes by hand and then, yeah. And then go back and dig them all back up again by hand and, you know, to, for them to be left to like rot or go off or we overcook them or we throw away the skins, you know, I was like, this, we can't do this either. Like this, we have to use the skins, you know, you've got, we've just got to respect what this guy's just done for us and not be so um, blase about the product, you know, just have a little bit more care and attention in what you're doing. Any offcuts and things like that, we were trying to ways of fermenting, pickling, preserving. Is there a way that we can cook that product and turn it into something else? You know, um, the leaves from cauliflower, uh, yeah, from cauliflowers, you know, it, everything on that item can be used somehow. Okay. Um, and people were enjoying it as well. Like they were finding ways because it was something new to learn, you know. Yeah. Um, so... So you yeah, were we, experimenting, is that correct? Like with yeah, we were experimenting with it for for sure. With like especially with like the fermentation side of it, you know, um, some stuff didn't fermentation, work. Fermentation though, fermentation of what? Uh, so like taking anything. So if there was something that we thought that we couldn't use, so like uh, so wait, so all the the stems from asparagus when you click off that bottom part. Um, you've just paid for that and generally that would go in the bin. So we were trying to find ways of um, keeping that and trying to use it. So we ended up um, juicing it. We'd like juice it like three or four times. So then we take the pulp back out again, we juice it again, take the pulp out, juice it, we just keep juicing it until we'd extracted as much as possible. So now it's lighter and we've, 
we've created another product, then we'd add salt to that and then we'd turn it into a brine or we'd let it, we'd put stuff in it to ferment. And so we're just trying to be clever with things like the stems of beetroots. So like uh, the leaves from the stems. So instead of just chopping down all the stems to like cook in with onions and things, we juice it and juice it and juice it until we've got this like beetroot juice. And now we can use that to like cook beetroots in and, it was, yeah, we were just trying to be clever about the product, you know, get a whole beetroot and then you take off all the leaves. Yeah, you can use the leaves. What about all this stem? You know, um, don't just throw that in the bin. What can we do with that now? So every time we found a solution for one thing, it opened up another little kind of corridor or door to walk through. It was good. It was exciting. It was good fun, but um, just a lot of work and yeah we tried with um the suppliers at 15 you know we were we were making a little bit of headway with people like instead of like the fish arriving in those kind of waxed cardboard boxes we started to like not accept them we were we don't want them we want it to be in the big fishing yeah. big plastic fishing crates you know that can be taken back yeah just because of we didn't want the waste but also it costs us to get rid of that yeah, waste. It does. yeah yeah so we were trying to in all ways possible we were trying to like reduce our waste coming into the kitchen because it makes our life a little bit easier you know we even tried um getting rid of cling film and tin foil and things like that um which was really difficult because once you've got 20 people that are very used to using cling film and tin foil like it was so hard to like change their mindset. What, on, what, uh, how did you replace them? What did you replace? Uh, them? It was basically buy more plastic containers that were reusable. So more containers with lids. Um, yeah. And try and get people to decant things from like metal containers with no lids into containers with lids that were plastic. So yeah, that was difficult. Um, but we, we definitely made impacts there on reducing the amount of cling film we bought through a month. Um, things were like blue, the, the blue roll that you use yeah. to like wipe your hands. Yeah. Same thing, you know, um, trying to change people ripping loads of blue roll out to dry their hands or ripping loads of blue roll out to like wipe down the sides of the, the workbenches. Yeah. You know, to use reusable uh, microfiber cloths and things like that, you know, yeah. it was things that can be washed. Um, yeah, it was a hard, it was hard. And it, it did definitely take me at least 18 months to two years to like have all that stuff reduced, you know. Um, I've like constantly, constantly telling people, no, that's too much, you're using too much, like reduce, reduce, reduce. And now to like, even put it into like terms where they could understand it. So we were using so much blue roll, I think, um, a week that you could uh, go from our restaurant in a straight line to the headland at Newquay. With all the only way I could put it into something that they would understand, like the distance of blue roll you're using yeah, yeah. Um, was almost two kilometers a week. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I was like, we that has to stop. <laughs> like, we yeah, can't yeah. use this much. Um, and we got it, we halved it essentially using small growers whose life it's their livelihood. Yeah. And it was to 
not respect that and just to chop off what we want and throw the rest in the bin just seems quite a shame and a waste, you know, and, um, yeah, you know, we've paid, we've paid for it. We've given those guys our money, but still, if they knew what we were doing with their product, you know, I feel like they would be quite upset. So it was trying to change the chef's mindset. That's my, that's where I was coming from, you know, trying to obviously reduce the the waste in the world, you know, and all that kind of stuff. But mine was from more of a farmer's point of view, you know, to respect what they were doing. Okay. All right. Thank you Cheers very much for your time. No, man, thanks for calling me. If you're lucky enough to live around the Nuki area, you can try one of Adam's takeaway dishes and to find them, log into Instagram and follow him on Adam underscore underscore Banks. When envisioning a sustainable future, we need a society that is compassionate to make this possible. Our next guest, Professor Pete King, talks to us about the influence of acts of kindness. Over to you. Oh, hi there. Yeah, well... Thanks. Yeah, that's what I was. I was an academic for 30 years, five different universities. I taught history, criminology. We moved down here to Cornwall five years ago to build a contemplative garden, a prayer meditation garden, and to do a hospitality project on the Helford River. We've been enjoying it. And I've been doing the chaplaincy, as you say, at the university for a few years, taking my two golden retrievers in and creating a kind of um, retriever club as well. So... Yeah, I've loved it being in Cornwall for five years and we're, we're halfway, maybe two thirds away to building this garden, which we will open with the um, Quiet Gardens movement, which allows, which will allow people to come and use the garden um, for free whenever they, on, on certain days and whenever they really want to, basically. That's what we're doing, my wife and I, my wife's dream. She's a gardener, stained glass artist, um, and I'm now an academic who's, Skills are not terribly actually applicable to making a garden. I'm, I can write a history of the garden, but I'm not quite sure I'm so good at doing the gardening. In fact, plants tend to die in my hands. What would you like to share with, uh, you know, with other people? I think it, it comes out of the time of COVID in a way in that it it's challenges us to think about the what I've got as my strap line, which is two ways of replenishing our souls kindness and forgiveness and I, uh, or compassion and mercy you could say that they're, they're, they're in a way pseudonyms for the same thing um so trying to think about not about how many people in our culture you know how are you going to replenish they would say I'm, as they did yesterday i'm going on a shopping spree or uh I'm going to go on a holiday. And in, in our never enough culture, we're taught that that's how you replenish yourself. You buy something else. And what I'm saying fairly obviously is that that's the, the actual way of replenishing yourself is through relationships and getting those relationships into all kinds of good order, if you like. The two things I've chosen to talk about, kindness and forgiveness, are part of a broader range of things which um, I get excited about. Now, in our garden uh, that we're building, we've planted a, a ring of nine olives. Now, those nine are love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, which, I want, which I've chosen, faithfulness, gentleness, 
and self-control. Uh, each of those you could go on for a long time, but I want to just focus for the moment on kindness and on the other absolutely vital soul replenishing, um, which is forgiveness. So let's start off with kindness. Um, I think uh, I'll come on to the, the, the science in a moment a little bit, but I think the story of the, cha uh, the, the chaplaincy, where we have this, you've been there, Colin, so you know about it. It's a space with a, a kitchen, a dining room. It's got uh, a lovely set of sofas to sit around, a mezzanine with um, a bed to lie on and bean bags. So it's like a little home. And students come to it often just to relax or to cook their meal or have tea and cake that they're given or can make for themselves. But they also come to be refreshed with a kind of relationship with the chaplain. And that's what I found when I go in two days a week uh, on, in the afternoons. And one of them, as you know, I go in with my two golden retriever dogs that offer this immediate affection. One of the dogs climbs on your lap if you sit on the floor. So what we're trying to do there is, is provide a kind of a home. Now, what I found is, and I'll give you an example of one student, for example, who came this year. She arrived in the first week, came down, realized the dogs were there and said, oh, I'm going to come every week. She's very, very quiet. She's got the equivalent of ME. She's got being a student for her is this huge challenge that she's not got people's normal energy levels. So she's fighting through her first term and you can see it. She comes, she's very quiet. I always ask her how she is. We just chat a little bit. How have you got on this week? And then she goes away again after an hour, having, or maybe a couple of hours, being with the dogs, being around with the other students. At the end of term, she wrote a lovely note saying, this experience of just being in this kind place has made a huge difference to my first term. It's enabled it to happen in a, a way that would not have been possible without it. And I think what I learned from that is that I was not offering very much. I was saying hello, remembering her name, being there if she wanted to talk, but she didn't usually want to talk. Act of kindness. And yet it meant a lot to her in her first term at university. It did really help her get through. And I've had other students write and say, this kind of stuff the chaplaincy provides, which is really a listening, quiet kindness, uh, can be incredibly special. I don't think I'd have got through you without it. So that's the first thing I think about kindness is small acts of kindness can be incredibly important. The other thing is that kindness affects our chemistry. So I've been reading this book by Hamilton on the chemistry of the neuroscience of kindness, where he talks about all the ways that uh, the chemicals in our body change and go forward in positive ways when we do acts of kindness, volunteers live longer and all the rest of it. There's a, a huge neuroscience kind of studies now. Kindness um, develops in us, an act of kindness gives us back wonderful chemistry, the kind of chemistry you might also get by other activities like feeding a baby or making love, comes when you do an act of kindness. So the science is there along with, if you like, the psychology. And that doesn't really, um, surprise me and what it feels to me is as someone who believes in a loving creator God is that God hardwired us for kindness and of course there's one other aspect to kindness and I'm not gonna I'm gonna go on to talk about forgiveness I think but the other aspect about kindness which comes out again is love your neighbor as yourself is a, a well-known saying which comes from the Bible love your neighbor 
yes, be kind, but also be kind to yourself. And it's only in as much as you can be, as you're kind to yourself in a way that you can be kind to others. So there's a beauty in kindness, which is not just about giving. It's about the depth of receiving, both from the chemistry uh, and from our own sense. I think when we are mean to other people, we have an awful habit of really being quite mean to ourselves. Uh, and the kindness draws us out. Compassion, what does kindness mean? Um, it means a generous heart. It means compassion, feeling with. But what we try and do in the chaplaincy is not to tell the students what to do, but to feel with them where they are. Compassion, come is with, isn't it? Passion is feeling. So yeah. um, to me, that's just been a wonderful journey with the chaplaincy for the last three years, finding out how simple being with compassion can produce such a, a lovely impact particularly on the lives of young students going through a huge tsunami of change, uh, facing all kinds of rethinking about themselves, but also just genuine situations of finance and social situations that are difficult. If you are kind to someone else with an open heart, are you saying that not only does, uh, obviously the act of kindness to the other person is quite evident, but you're actually saying as well that uh, it actually replenishes oneself as well. Is, is that what you're saying, Peter? Yeah, that's what Hamilton's book on the chemistry of kindness um, is talking about. And he talks about all kinds of neuroscience that they're doing, that you can actually spot the chemicals changing when people do acts of kindness. They've done all kinds of experiments with this, um, as well as empirical studies of things. You know, volunteers live 25% longer if you volunteer in old age. And uh, and this, so, it, you know, there are, there are all kinds of ways, but the, the chemistry, I mean, I don't, I'm not going to try and read you the bits from the book about the chemistry because I'm uh, oxytocin and so on. I'm right out of my depth. Yeah. Uh, but it's extremely convincing and it's convincing not just from his book, but from all sorts of other studies of kind of empirical social science on people who give out a lot. Uh, I mean, the other thing, for example, people in a good marriage live longer. Yeah. You know, when you are, when your kindness is coming back and forth. But of course, that's also about receiving as well as giving. Um, so yeah, the nearest, I mean, I could, I could get the book and read it out, but it doesn't seem worth it really. I think his, his um, experience, uh, and he goes chapter after chapter, he looks at different aspects of the chemistry of kindness. And I think it, it's extremely uh, persuasive. Peter, thank you very much for talking about acts of kindness and how they affect others and also yourself and also thank you for sharing your own experiences on kindness as well the book that peter was talking about is a book that you can buy on amazon and it's by david r hamilton phd and it's the five side effects of kindness and it's a scientific study on the the different chemicals that are released when we are kind to others Thank you, Peter. Thank you for listening to the Zero Waste Code, brought to you by Green Code. If you'd like to keep updated with us, then head to greencode.net, where you'll find all our social media links and newsletter sign-up. Or feel free to get in touch with us on our email, contact at greencode.net.